Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Our first panelist got his start as a PA on the West Wing. His television credits include Jericho, Warehouse 13, and Human Target, and his film credits include the in-development adaptations of Zorro and Why the Last Man. Please welcome Steven Skaya. Hello. Our next panelist has early credits on both of David Letterman's late-night shows, The Simpsons and Just Shoot Me, among other things. He's since gone on to work on many diverse comedy projects, from Lil Bush to Complete Savages to Bored to Death, uh, and he's currently on The New Girl. Please welcome Donick Carey. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. And our final panelist got his start with the Muppets. Uh, seriously. Hey, <laughs> right? How cool is that? <laughs> uh, he's worked with the Henson Company on uh, various projects, including the Disney theme park's Muppet Vision 3D. His sitcom work includes Dream On, Darman Greg, Caroline in the City, and others. He has an episode of Star Trek Voyager to his name uh, and was staffed on Gilmore Girls, where he wrote several episodes. He's the co-creator of The Big Bang Theory. Please welcome Bill Prady. Hello. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, let's get right into it. I told you guys I would start with my most pressing question. Um, and, Bill, I, I sort of implied that that was going to be about uh, teaching or the Big Bang Theory, but I forgot about the Muppets. <laughs> let's talk about the Muppets for a minute. Uh, what would you like to know? How, how did you get involved? What were you doing for the Henson Company? Uh, it was an interesting time for them as well. Um... So, to put this into con- historical context, I'm old. <laughs> uh, and uh, I had been working, so my first career had been in computer programming. And this was in New York in a- around 1980 or so, and sort of the early microcomputer days before they were called personal computers. And uh, and I, I left that, and I started to work in television as a production assistant mostly and the Muppets were going to do a show that was uh, the Muppets look at the world of technology um, and it never got produced but I was hired as a researcher on that show and this is actually remarkably cool so the the project was falling apart when I got there and I didn't know that but the writing staff for this um, was Norm Stiles who was the head writer of Sesame Street 
and Christopher Cerf, who's the son of uh, Bennett Cerf, the founder of Random House, and Chris wrote um, many songs that you know from Sesame Street, and he's immortalized as uh, little Chris on the Alpha Beats, if you see that puppet. Um, and uh, Douglas Adams uh, of Hitchhiker fame. Uh, and these were all the writers, and because the project was kind of falling apart, that our days were sort of sitting in a room and talking. Um, and then when it finally did, um, and I just looked for any job that I could have at the Muppets because it was the Muppets. Uh, and they, uh, the Muppet offices were in this beautiful uh, townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York. And there was an amazing big conference room with a giant portrait of Kermit as as Green Boy uh, at one end. And it was, it, you know, other than the fact that they really weren't producing anything at the time, um, it was uh, it, it was the Muppets. Um, and uh, so I worked in a bunch of jobs there, and then uh, and that's where I started writing, um, and. Uh, uh, there's a, there are details to that story, but <laughs> we, we get into it a little bit before we move on. So uh, what, here, here's what happened. Yeah. Here's what was going on at the Muppets. Um, there were um, uh, during the production of the Muppet Show, there were there were writers there. There were the, the Muppet Show writers. When that ended, um, and there were no writers, there are all sorts of things that couldn't happen anymore. And uh, for example, a simple request like a. Um, people would call for a press quote from Kermit the Frog on some topic. <laughs> and um, because Kermit, in a sense, isn't real, and in a sense he is. Um, but uh, that normally would have gone to a writer, and so there were a stack of, there were a stack of requests for things that weren't getting done, and they were just, they were, they were being thrown away. So I went... To, it was this was in the public relations department at the time I was working in the merchandise licensing area um, and I picked up these and I said listen if you weren't as long as you 're not going to do these could i could I try one and I looked through them and one of the things in there was that year the post office uh, love stamp had a puppy on it and they wanted Kermit uh, Jim's character Rolf the dog um, to uh, be at the press conference to announce this love stamp with the puppy on it. Well, I had the same reaction. And I also thought, you know, a dog in a room full of mailmen is interesting. So I wrote a piece for Rolf where he took the opportunity to clear up some of the misunderstandings that exist between dogs and mailmen and to point out that uh, dogs love mailmen and they're glad when they visit and they're sad when they go and they know they have places to be but sometimes they'll gently tug on their pant leg to urge them to stay but the mailman has to go so they have to just really sink their teeth into the sweet flesh of their calf and then Rolf said but I digress <laughs> so I wrote that and um, my office um, uh, my office at Muppets, I always, while I was there, I had the worst office at the Muppets, except for a guy named Charlie who had the, a desk in uh, a hallway outside my office. <laughs> Charlie is now the U.S. ambassador to France. That's true. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, So I'm in my office, and um, Jim Henson uh, came into my office, which was startling. 
because A, because I don't think he'd ever been there, and B, because Jim was very, very tall, um, and my office was very small. Um, so it was sort of like Gandalf coming into the Shire. Um, and, uh, and he said, you know, do you, uh, you write this thing for Ralph? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, I, f- I think we'll go do that. And, uh, and so and we did. Uh, and then I wrote uh, a bunch of small projects there. And I wrote, you mentioned the 3D movie, but a bunch of other stuff at the Muppets. The Muppets was a wonderful place to work. Muppets was a great place to work when you're single because it's the best pickup line in the world. <laughs> Because it brands you as interesting and sort of harmless and without genitals. So it's <laughs> kind of fuzzy. It's kind of fuzzy. Uh, good. We'll, we'll get back to this stuff. I'm, good. I'm very I interested got to good hear from Ben on that story. <laughs> <laughs> A good solid B. Well done. Thank you. Um, Donic, I want to hear about uh, The New Girl. Are you guys watching The New Girl right now? Um, we, we've talked about the show a lot on the podcast. We had uh, Liz here early last year, and I, the, I'll tell you this. I said to her, the thing I love about it is that you guys allow Jess to just be this basket case yes. all the time, and it's, it's we, not held back. We, um, we give Liz a lot of credit for that. <laughs> Was she in pajamas or not? Here. She, yeah, that's what she said. Yeah. Usually she's in pajamas. Yeah. Um, but my question is about these current episodes. Um, big turning points in the stories of the lives of the characters. Can you take us inside the writer's room for a minute and talk about some of the decisions that were made? Yeah. Uh, or the conversations that were had about, you know, having one character kiss the other. And... Yeah. I, I, you know, it's a, it's a tried and true uh, way to build a show is have the will they, won't they scenario hanging over everything. Mm-hmm. And it was always thought that, that um, Nick and Jess somewhere down the road would kiss, get together or something. And um, last season, when we f- first shot a scene with the two of them, there was such strong chemistry. We weren't writing anything sexual or anything where they were even interested in each other. And you just put them together, and you're like, oh, God, are they going to do it? And you're like, <laughs> so we, we kind of, like, a thing that normally would play out over, over four or five seasons seemed like about a season and a half in, we had to address it pretty quickly. Um, the writer's room, like, the discussion, you know, we talk a lot about it. Ultimately... It's a little chaotic. Everyone's very tired, and suddenly things magically form where you're going, like, this is the episode we're doing, and you know what? They could just kiss here. We should just do it. And then that's what happens, kind of. Um, and, then, and then we kind of have four or five episodes to deal with wh- whatever we just did that week. But, um, but it's been fun, and watching those episodes, you go, like, okay, it's, it's fun to be in this place now where we're exploring a real relationship instead of kind of... It, it felt like we were... Um, in a lot of ways, just treading water until we could get to it. So I'm sorry I keep looking at you. I'm not, I'm not supposed no, to. No, no, you can look at me. <laughs> um, stay close to uh, You're doing great. Oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, now, now, now we're into it and figuring out where that, that goes and leads up to to the end of the season and then, and then where, where, now that we've actually had them kiss, where, how we can create more explosions mm-hmm. to, into season three. It's funny. We share an, uh, a floor at, on the Fox lot with... The Homeland writers. So <laughs> they're dealing with these story issues and stuff, and we all come out of the room and meet in the bathroom. And, and over the urinals, we, we look at each other and go, like, How's it going? And they're like, uh, uh, Carrie had a baby, and now they just, she doesn't want to shoot. We got to change the way we're shooting season three. And, and then you watch Homeland, and you're like, What, what they're dealing with? <laughs> like, we just go back and go, like, Is this funny? And, and uh, maybe they kiss again. I don't know. So. <laughs> our, our problems aren't so bad. Is, is it so seat of the pants there? Um, it's, we talk, 
we, we talk a lot about it, lay it all out. Uh, it changes a lot as we go. Uh, each week we kind of we, – we, um, we write a lot of drafts. We write a lot of jokes for each scene. We shoot a lot of there, – there's a lot, some improv on the set. And we shoot a lot of versions of scenes. So we don't really find what the episode is until we've fully edited it. And then we can really figure out what the next episode is. But by then, that next episode's had three or four drafts and started to uh, you know, prep for shooting. And um, So it's not by the seat of our pants. There's, it's, it's almost like we have a big bowl of material that's just full, and then you find it in editing, and then go to the next one, and you have to have all these choices to make sure it connects with that wherever we've landed. But that, and you've been that, there both years, right? So yeah. that has to catch up to you by the end of the season, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting, because the, the way the pilot... I think the way that the pilot happened was... And I only helped out in the pilot a little bit, um, but, but watching it was... We sort of came up with this uh, system for making the show, which was, let's try it a bunch of different ways... And shoot a lot of stuff, and it immediately resonated with people. So Fox got very excited, and we're like, whatever you need to do, if you need to spend the night every night, if you need pajamas, if you need more money, uh, if you want to reshoot every scene, it's fine. And we went, it just started to happen that way. Um, so different from any show I've worked on, there, there's, there's a um, somewhat arduous uh, sleep de- deprivation thing going on also while we do them. But yeah. uh, And how many writers are on staff? There are, uh, I believe, 13 writers uh, this year. There, there's a, there's uh, two writing teams, and, uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, this, so there's 13 writers, and how are, I mean, how are scripts broken? Again, you, you kind of find it as you go, but then it, does, does a pitcher have ownership over an idea? And, and you know, how is yeah, that Yeah, I'll tell you, it's, fun, it's funny, because we're, we're in sort of the... Uh, you, I'm sure you have this on Big Bang where you get you get through Christmas and you're in the last like oh we have six more we have to get through and we're all exhausted and they just on Friday I, I may not be announced I should be quiet but they, it sounded this like they come out for a couple weeks okay it sounded it, it's like ninety percent that they're picking up a, a 25th episode which we were all like oh my god how can we how can we possibly but it extended everything by two weeks we're all looking for the, a little break. Um, I'm sorry. So the question is, is how do the stories and the ownership? We the, there's an effort. There's a real effort for people to take ownership of uh, an idea and a script. It's very collaborative. Ultimately, it comes down to Liz, who who spends a couple nights with it in 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 her sleeping bag and makes sure it's it's what you know what feels like the show and what she wants the show to be. Um, the writer definitely goes through you know a, a, a rewrite process. Uh, the room adds a lot of jokes. I mean, primarily the room there is adding material. So, you, so once those scenes crystallize, we just pile on. Here's ten jokes for every line. Um, that, that's, that, that could just be to done. clarify, that's after it goes through the writer's draft and then Liz's draft. It comes back to the room. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We do. Uh, I mean, if it's interesting, just tell me if it's, it's not. It's interesting. Um, we we do a a pitch page, which is is uh, about a three quarters of a page, just kind of outlining the story and get that signed off by the studio and the network. And then we do a an outline, and we've changed this a few times. But right now, that outline is just for us. The, no one else oh, really? uh, looks at that, and we go through it and then send a writer off to do a draft. They come back. Uh, it's it's often a writer does a second draft with notes from the executive producers and maybe some notes from other writers, and then um, that draft is rewritten by a little bit of the staff, but usually Liz, and then the staff adds a bunch of jokes to that, and and we read it, rewrite it again, shoot it. It's 
Steve, and then is the is the initial writer on set and in and editing the, yeah, as well. Yeah, and then the, and then the initial writer goes goes to set for the week. Um, it's every one of these episodes. It's interesting because uh, it feels like we've done a lot of different styles of shows. So we did like mm-hmm. a, a, a almost a murder mystery the, a, a week ago, and and you have these things where you go like. You, you think you get the format of what this is, and then it's like we try something new. So depending on what that week's episode is or what you've been assigned to write, you might be on the set of um, at the horse track or out in the desert or on the set doing more of a standard sitcom. It, it, it's um, interesting that way where it's, it's like you're doing these little short films every week. Um, but the writer's there for the whole week of shooting, and then as edits come in, they also look at it and weigh in. And, and ultimately, I'm, I mean, Liz is, is all over everything, and Jake Casson is in the editing as well. So, um, and they're great and super funny and, you know, keep cool. the tone. And uh, We'll talk about how this compares to some of your other experiences in a minute. Uh, but Steve, let's talk about Star Wars. <laughs> we we talked about the Muppets. I feel like it's only right that we uh, get to you. You also got to write a childhood favorite. What would you like to know? <laughs> Just tell us everything. Tell uh, us about the project because you can now talk about it. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things where there's probably things I sh- I I can say and probably things I yeah. shouldn't say. Well, oh, by but... the way, we can always take things out. Great, um, uh, and these guys will shut up about it. But uh, <laughs> but I, along with my writing partner Matt Fireman, who's over there, everybody. Um, we, uh, we were the first, like, class of the, 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 like, the first writing room for the Star Wars live-action TV show that may or may not happen, and, um, it was exactly what you would think that that experience is in, in all of the, all of the greatness of sitting next to the guy who is one of the reasons you do what you do, and you sit next to him for a week and a half straight. And you, you just, you're talking about Star Wars. And it's not you with action figures like it has always been for your entire life. You're actually talking to the guy. And, you know, there's, there's no greater moment creatively for me than, the, like, one of the days we're in the room and we're all, we're, we're beating out an action scene. And I'm kind of, like, a little bit running around the room, a little high energy sometimes, you know, and especially when you're in the Star Wars room, you know. And uh, it's, a, it's a beloved character who's, flying around on his jetpack and I'm and then he flies through a thing and does a thing and then a thing happens and then I finish and I'm just sitting there like dripping with sweat out of breath and the the room goes back to talking and he's sitting next to me he leans over and he goes you know you look like you're like nine years old right now <laughs> and I said I, I listen I'm not gonna lie to you I, I completely am and he's he said you know what I'll tell you something I haven't had this much fun in a room since we were breaking the truck chase and Raiders and that's that feels good, you know. That's good company. So it was a really great experience. I'm, I'm curious about so so a bunch of writers got this call to come up to San Francisco, right, and yep. do this. Yep. Um, and when you guys arrived, did Lucas know? I said his name. <laughs> did Lucas know what he wanted out of this television series? He did. Or he, were you guys pitching on? Something? No, he uh, he knew what he wanted and he had ideas. But what was to his to his credit, which was great as a showrunner, he knew, okay, well, here's what I want from the show. And then over the course of that first week, we were, he, it became a writer's room where t- t- I remember the first day he didn't want to put up a dry erase board in the room because he's like, we don't need a dry erase board. Guys, just write it down. It's fine. We're like, yeah, but I mean, it's really great to have the dry erase board. You can look at it. And he's like, guys, I don't need it. And then by the third day, we were talking about something and he was having trouble keeping it in all his head. And he's like, you know what? <sighs> Let's just get a dry erase board. So he goes over to the Renoir that's on the wall. And he pulls it off the wall and just sets it down. 
and and it puts up it has a dry erase board. He leans up against a chair, up against the wall, gets some dry erase markers. He's like, okay, so anyway, where we you know here we are. And then security thirty seconds later bursts through the door, and oh oh it's you sir. Oh sorry, we you can't just pull those off the wall because he's like, oh right with a thing. It's all right guys, sorry. Dry erase board. It's, you know we're gonna do this thing now. It's I cool. I imagine they were dressed as stormtroopers. Am I wrong? Is that not right? <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so so then, all right. So the stories kind of came together as a group. Yep. Uh, and then everyone went off to write their own scripts, and then you would you would uh, you would come back. You would turn them in. Everyone would read everybody else's. You would come back. You would get notes. You would go back. You would do another rewrite. It was just it was it was like a really it was like a writer's room for a week at a time. Yeah. And then you'd go away for two months, and then you'd come back, and then new people come in, and you know you're you know they've however many scripts they did, you know, there was X amount of writers who would come in and it would just kind of be turnover. But for that week and a half where you're living at the ranch and you're, you're not just living at the ranch, you're living Star Wars next to George Lucas and you're pitching stories that he's like, yeah, that sounds like Star Wars to me. You know, like that's, you know, it's a dream come true. <laughs> so you just, try, you just try not to vomit all over him any chance you get. I don't have any more questions. About that. <laughs> uh, what, although you can kind of speak to what is the state of this thing? No one owns it now, and no uh, one knows if it's going to see the light. Of anytime day, right? I read anything about it, I mean, it's it's one of those things that they talk about in the in the commodities that they exchanged when Disney bought, mm-hmm. you know, however many scripts there were. It's 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 got to be one of those things that they just looked at and they're like, oh my god, this is a, there's a, there's how many of these scripts did he make? Did he? I mean, how many did he commission? And the thing is, like the the thing that's that's great about it is, it's like they're just they're completely unproducible because George doesn't he just was just like guys just write what you want we're like okay but you know like in this act I think maybe we can only do one action scene because you know in the standing sets and he's like guys guys just just make it awesome just like have fun with it don't don't worry about how much it's gonna cost and like just it's, just go for it so you really you got highest balls on your imagination and you just went for it yeah. that's unbelievable yep Bill talk to us a little bit about um Big Bang, I'm, I'm curious about, um, about pitching this show. Uh, oh, initial, uh, initially? Yeah, initially, CBS? 13 oh. years ago, or however long it was. No. <laughs> How long has the show been on? Six years? Six years, and we did the pilot twice, so I guess it's, it's eight years oh, ago. Yeah, so it would be about eight years ago. Um, we you know um, Chuck and I wrote it on, on spec. Oh, really? Um, I mean, which is, I mean, because of... You know where Chuck was, and he was doing Two and a Half Men, that was doing very well for CBS. So it wasn't, you know, it's it's not the same as you know writing it on spec, you know, often in you know isolation. Um, but no, we wrote it on spec, and um, we had decided to do a pilot. We tried about six or seven different ideas. Um, we actually had. Uh, we had a show based on guys I knew in the computer business, which is, which are sort of the characters from Big Bang. And then there was a, a show we were working on. There was an actress we were told was desperate to get into television. And so we wrote something for her. And it was a, about a woman who'd kind of never been on her own, that she'd always been you know, living with her parents and then a boyfriend and a husband. So she's on her own for the first time in her late 20s. Um, and we wrote that. And then this, this actress who everyone said is desperate to do television, we said, all right, well, we have the script. And they said, oh, well, she's not interested in television. So, um, but at some point, 
we took that character from that script and then the, guy, the computer guys and we put them together. Um, and we, um, we wrote a couple scenes of Big Bang and we had actors uh, come in and we, ha- and we went over. And one of the things that, you know, the advantage of having Chuck is he was able to, you know, call Les Moonves and get him into the meeting. Um, and that's the only advantage because at that point, uh, Les is a person who's going to buy things he likes and not buy things he doesn't. But we had actors come in and read uh, the first two scenes because we thought that it was the kind of thing you couldn't explain in a pitch. The the nature of the characters wasn't something that was going to come off well. And we didn't, you know, we weren't doing Revenge of the Nerds and we weren't doing... We, all all of the archetypes that we felt the pitch would get flattened into. Because when you, when you pitch, you know, what happens is is that... You know, you'll pitch to a group of people, and then they will summarize the pitch, and then they will pitch to to their bosses, who will then summarize it. And it's a process where everything just gets flatter and flatter, as it as it. Which is why I think sometimes things that are very very crazy and big succeed because the pitch stayed interesting, even though it got less interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so we we did it that way. We, um, we so we kind of did a little show. Um, and we had none, none of the people who were in our little troupe uh, wound up on the show. The, the woman who played, who read for the, the female lead actually did an episode of the show later on, um, and a writer uh, um, who's the co-creator, or the creator of Mike and Molly, um, filled in and read the Leonard part. And did, did you do the, uh, those shows? Was it like at a theater or was it a table read? Or oh a, no, no, it was just yeah. in in a conference room. Oh, you just oh yeah, in. no, it okay. was it was us and and fifteen CBX executives and three <laughs> actors in a conference room, and we um, we said here's a show, and <laughs> they read the first two scenes, and we said, and then here's what we think happens. Um, and then they we said thank you very much, and they said thank you very much, and then we left. And about an hour later, they called and they said, then they ordered a pilot. Um, and then we did that pilot, and it's not good, the first version of the pilot, but you can find it on the internet. <laughs> Uh, what was what was not good about it? Well, a couple of things, and it, and and um, they're writing mistakes. Um, and one of the things that we did was the female character was. Kind of the hooker with a heart of gold archetype, which is very, very tough on the outside. And we, when we met her, I think – I can't remember in the script we shot, but in the initial draft we met her. She was destroying her ex-boyfriend's car. Um, or uh, the, I think the version we shot, she was just sitting on the curb crying. But she was a very, very tough girl. And um, and our characters were kind of sweet, and the thing was very much out of balance. And um, so that, you know, CBS put it through testing and the character tested of the woman tested very badly. But they said, but they liked the guys and said, we'll do it again. And we had a meeting and they brought their casting people because it was a meeting to recast the part. And we said, oh, no, 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 this was this was writing mistakes. And so we're going to rewrite the script. Um, And they said, okay. Um, So and then so we shot a second pilot. Um, but it's it's interesting. But listening to you talk about New Girl, because you, the the process for doing New Girl, 
Other than the fact that um, we both use English, bears, <laughs> no, bears no resemblance to the process of That's producing an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, tell, so, tell us how it's different. Well, I mean, to begin with, you have the, the single camera, four camera thing. So a single camera show is shot and produced and conceived like a 22-minute film. And four camera is done in front of a studio audience, and it's theatrical. It's a play. So, um, you know, because of that, you, you uh, do fewer scenes and the scenes are longer. Um, and it's talkier uh, because you can't go to a racetrack and you can't go to wherever it else y- yeah. y- you go. Um, and because of that, the, um, the process of producing it is close to having sort of a play. You know, you're, you're putting up a play, so we'll do a table read with the script and following the table read we will do a rewrite based on what worked and didn't work at the table the next day we see it up on its feet as a rehearsal and we just watch it and stand there and the actors are in book and then we'll leave that run through and the stuff that didn't work um, they will uh, we, we will rewrite and they will get new pages the next day and we'll repeat that um, so there's, there's no improvisation at all uh, because it's going to be performed live in front of an audience, and so you, th- there can't be improvisation, and there's you know there's choreography between actors moving and cameras moving, so things are going to look the way they they looked in rehearsal, and and the other thing that we did very early on in Big Bang Theory because the show has a, a very peculiar voice, w- we discovered that no matter who went off and did a draft, it was radically rewritten. Um, so we abandoned writers going off and do drafts, and Big Bang Theory is room written from from page one. So we will we break the story, uh, we will outline it on the dry erase board, which I persist in calling a grease board. Does anyone else use that? No one. Okay. Not even George Lucas. Not even George Lucas. He called it a drift. Bring in a dry erase board. All right. Um, and uh, we'll put an outline up. In the first two years, those outlines were fairly detailed. Now, if you look on the board, sometimes a scene is, you know, something about Kuthrapali and his dog is <laughs> what the scene says. And um, the, advantage, the advantage of doing this is twofold. One is, is that all the writers are in the room uh, when we write them, or usually most of them, and so, uh, you know, when a joke is pitched, it's topped and topped and topped, and then the best one goes in. So your first draft is your third draft. But the other thing, and this is the, this is the biggest thing, is um, slavery to the outline is the enemy of writing. Um, because something that appeared possible in the outline it turns out to be unexecutable. But if you remain faithful to the outline, you will write the unexecutable scene and it will be very bad. Um, so we will we break the story constantly as we write it. So you get to the scene and this is the scene where we say, okay, and this character goes and tells this character off and we start to write it and we say, well, this is just awful. So let's do something else because this scene won't write and it's not funny and it's not good. And at that point we say, okay, well then if we do that, there's, you know, there's a ripple effect. There are hundreds of metaphors for it. There's a ripple effect. It's a house of cards. It's blah, 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 that you'll hear. 
And um, and then we'll stop and we'll say, okay, well, we're not going to do that scene. We'll do this one instead, and we'll re-break what remains of the script. And we'll probably do that about four or five times in the course of writing it. Um, we, you know, because we try not to force characters to do things they they refuse to do as we write the scene. And the other thing, be, you know, because you have people in the room. Uh, if you go off and write, you can lie to yourself. You can say, this scene works. <laughs> and um, if there are other people in the room while you're writing it, and you're saying, well, uh, this this works. See, it just has, it's this part at the beginning where the woman in Detroit goes to Toledo for a quart of milk, and then it all, everything lays out. And then someone says, well, why doesn't she get the milk in Detroit? And then you're going, oh, okay, well, maybe there's a problem in the scene. <laughs> and because, you, because you're constantly defending the material, I love the Detroit episode, by the way. Thank you. One of the best. Dark. Um, yeah. Unexpectedly dark. Uh, well, because was, there was no milk. Uh, <laughs> people were sad. Um, but it's, um, you, know, the, you know, because what you do is filmic, the ability to, you know, film choices and then build the show in editing. Um, whereas we, we don't have that option. We're, you know... The, sh- the show is the show, the, it's the one we shot in front of the audience. We, our changes and our rewrites happen with 300 people sitting waiting for us because right. we'll shoot a scene and a joke dies, a moment dies, a thing doesn't work, and we will huddle while the warm-up is shouting the jokes we've heard a thousand times at the audience and the DJ is playing and under those circumstances we write new jokes and walk on the set and teach them to the actors and then shoot the scene again um, and then that's it and then you're done so. This I want to get back to this idea of uh, room writing uh, in a minute because I want to Donic you've worked on shows like this the multicam mm-hmm. where the writers are bit, huddled yep. around um, but even before that you know that kind of intense writing situation you must have had on the Letterman show. No, even even you just just describing it, I was go- get a little pit in my stomach for my <laughs> my uh, intense closeness to uh, Dave and yeah. and working on that, I, which was a great experience. I was there for the last two years at NBC and the first three years at CBS, and was the head writer for about um, almost two years at, was, at was CBS. Was Eddie Gordetsky there when you were there? Um, Eddie was not there. Eddie. I worked with Eddie at the Comedy Channel. Was Eric Kaplan there? Eric Kaplan was there briefly for a little okay. bit. Yes, I know Eric pretty well. We we actually both have. This animations. is not pertinent to you people. This is just Eric, it's all Eric staying I, in. He has an animation studio in Romania. I have an animation studio in Bulgaria. We we often um, face off over make him who, fight. Who, who's yeah, make him yeah. fight, line them up. Um, it's called an invasion when yeah. they do it. Uh, but but working with Dave as the head writer, you're suddenly with Dave from. Yeah early in the morning till late at night. You're with him every day. You hold his hand through, the th- through, through every episode. And there were a lot of those moments where you're, you're shooting it live to tape. So you're, there's no... There's, you can't even really take a lot of time in the commercial break to figure out anything. And often you're doing stuff um, like you have 20 dogs that are going to be let go through this thing, but Bill Murray's a little late and <laughs> Bill Clinton's also supposed to be on a video hookup or whatever. So you're juggling all this stuff and maybe the comedy piece doesn't go very well in the first thing. And suddenly, D- Dave keeps the studio very cold. I think everybody knows that. But also, in the commercial breaks, the band plays very loud so that Dave doesn't have to interact with the guests. 
but it also makes it very hard for you to interact with Dave when something's going wrong and you're trying to explain the ladder that's supposed to come down. So you're screaming and he's just frowning at you and blowing cigar smoke and yeah, it was it was it was awful. And then you'd have to like quickly write down what about this and maybe he'd see it and then suddenly the show would start again and he'd read the joke you held up and the audience would cheer and you're like, oh yeah, this is great. I love this. It was exhausting. <laughs> but um, take did, us through. Did he, make, did he make you eat steak and watch? That was t- that was Tim Long. Um, that was right after I left. I I um I ate oysters one night. There, there, Dave was also you know often um, dieting, watching his 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 figure. He's he's he trimmed down at some point at CBS for for uh, the eleven thirty crowd, and um, <laughs> but but also was like had few things in his life that actually entertained him. So. We, we always had, like, before anybody had heard of Starbucks coffee, suddenly there's packages coming in from Seattle with this new kind of coffee. And we were like, what is Starbucks? So we'd all try Starbucks. And you go up to Dave's office and try this magic coffee that he flew in. Um, but a number of things like that. Steaks came in from some, I guess it was Kobe beef from Japan came in one time. And Dave couldn't eat them because he was doing some kind of diet. So he'd call a writer up to go like have Tim come up and, and or whatever and whenever you get a call from Dave's office you're like oh god what's <laughs> what happened what am I going to yell what, what you know what's right. going wrong and you'd walk in sometimes you walk in and there'd be a, a we still use three quarter inch tapes that would go in a machine and you analyze segments or the mm-hmm. show sometimes that'd be on the floor clearly ejected out of anger and you'd have to talk about whatever segment it was but sometimes you'd walk in and there'd be a big tray of oysters or some new kind of cupcake or a lion <laughs> or a lion right <laughs> Amuse me. <laughs> and Dave would be sitting behind his desk and uh, sit down. And you're like, hey. And he'd start talking. And, and then uh, he'd be like, you like oysters? And like, sure. And I'm like, no one's touched them. He's like, go ahead. Have another one. Have another one. And he'd just watch you intensely enjoy them. And I think it was his way of... Um, Being crazy. <laughs> it was one of the ways he was crazy. <laughs> Very funny, man. Uh, take us through <laughs> briefly. I mean, we've had yeah. Tim has been here and he talked yeah. a little bit about it, and Casey Saint Ange, who was part of it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as the head writer, take us through a day of putting one of these shows on because it was every day. It's so it hard was all day. It's such hard work, and and um, part of it, I think, it's gotten a little easier in that there's so many of these shows, and and. Um, They've given everyone's given up the idea that you're going to reinvent the form every night. Um, when I was there, there was still this sort of idea that every day you could come in and come up with a totally new way to do a a 11:30 talk show, and if you didn't, you failed. So every night you went home a failure because there is just no way to do 300 of those a year and have them all be something original and brand new. Um, but uh, it was still super exciting and fun, you'd come in and go like, well, Elvis Costello's here today, and he's agreed to do a top ten list. And you're like, all right, that'll be fun. Let's figure out how to do that. The, the day for the head writer, um, at least while I was there, and it's changed, it's changed a little bit, is usually you'd be scrambling. You'd try to lay out the week over the weekend and look at what you'd, you'd do, and you'd have certain pieces, some you'd shot, and you'd plug those in on the schedule. Um, you'd come in, uh, get on the phone with Dave early. He drove in from Connecticut, so there was this time. He had some early kind of car phone um, when I was there that you'd be on a speaker, and it would usually cut out when, when you needed important information. So you'd be pitching, you know, at, at, at right at the – we're going to put the camera up, and then the bear – the guy in the bear suit's going to walk into this thing. And so what do you think? And then suddenly it'd just be dead, and you're like, do you hate it? We're not doing it? Hello? <laughs> 
and then a minute would go by. Sorry, my phone cut out. What do you? What, what, what's going on? So you'd start again and explain the thing, and often you'd you'd um, you'd have have something going into uh, rehearsal, and then it would fall apart. Um, you'd rehearse in the afternoon. So so you get that. Si- I'm sorry. You'd get that sign off early in the morning on sort of here's what the show is. We'd have a production meeting around ten thirty, I guess ten eleven. Walk the whole staff through what's happening, and then go back and write crazily to get whatever material needed to be done or prep for the next day or, or look at the end of the week or edit, edit pieces that were going to be on that week. Um, and then at 2.30, 2.30 to 4 was rehearsal. And you go down to the set and you walk through everything. And often at rehearsal you'd find that that thing you were kind of hoping would fall into place didn't fall into place. And then you'd be scrambling to go like, where else could we put a camera and try something? Or um, sometimes you'd rehearse very elaborate props that you'd built and none of them worked the way you wanted them to. Uh, I remember my first joke on there. I was an intern there originally and, and then left. Um, but the first joke I had in there was when I, when I was, uh, I guess I was a writer assistant. I came back as a writer assistant and it was a piece called, um, like, I, I don't even remember the joke, but it was like what, what they're doing about the heat wave. And it was just images of people and what they were doing. And I wrote a joke about like, uh, it was like, the Hulk, you know, like worrying about his makeup or something. I, I don't remember. But uh, we got on the show, the show that night. I was so excited. I was like, finally have a joke on Letterman. I watched it for 10 years, worked the way, my way up to, to writer's assistant. And he read one joke and kind of grimaced. And then he read, the, and then the Hulk came up behind him and he read that joke. And nobody laughed. And he tore up the, the stack of blue cards and threw them in the thing. It's like, I guess we'll do a commercial because we have no comedy. And I was like, yes! <laughs> On the air! <laughs> Clearly, I have found the place I should work for the next five years and become head writer because I get this. Um, but... Um, the rest of the day would be, you know, you get the show on, uh, on there, you tape at 5.30, and there was this crazy process of getting uh, the top ten together and getting, we also had these things called the um, man, uh, man Who, like just the announce at the beginning of the show, which was a man who likes his pants sewn sideways, whatever. And they were this thing that didn't matter, no one even listened to, but often Dave would throw out a page of them and go like, we just need something really good. So you'd be scrambling at 5.30 to get that to the announcer and fill in the top ten list. And then the show would start and you'd tape that for an hour. And uh, as soon as it was over, you'd go, what are we doing tomorrow? And get together with the writers and get stuff together and Dave would be in the car around 7 or 8 and you'd be pitching to him, here's what we're doing tomorrow for, for an hour or so. And usually there'd be a conversation. Some things would fall out. You get back with the writers, try and you know get that together between ten and eleven, eleven o'clock at night. Um, so you'd be ready to call him at eight a.m. again and talk through what's happening. Um, I remember the the best part of my day every day was around midnight. I would hail a ca- I would go out to hail a cab and then smell fresh baking cooking for, in in like a deli across the street for the next day. And I'm like, I'll just get a, one BLT. And I'd get a BLT on white bread. It was awful. And get in the cab and ride home, sadly eating that BLT. <laughs> and uh, worrying about 8 a.m. the next morning. It was great. It was really fun. <laughs> but th- I actually was going to ask you that. Was it really fun? Um, Did you take joy? I mean, you clearly had joy in some aspects oh yeah. of it. I, look, I love, I love the show. I grew up on it. Uh, you know, the, 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 talk about like working for the Muppets or Star Wars. Like, Dave was my idol. I, I, there was nowhere else I'd, I'd want to work. I thought I'd be there forever once I, I got there. Um, 
being a writer there was super fun. Being a writer's assistant was super fun. Even being an intern was super fun. The, um, the weight of the world of, is on Dave. He feels it, and he puts it on the head writer, you know, shares it with the head writer. I was 25 and had only worked there and was like, every day was like, Madonna needs some more. So you'd work with Madonna. You just assumed that this was normal, and the amount of pressure was, was insane. Um, and... Uh, so it wasn't – it's not that fun to just take on all this stuff. And you don't really have any control over it because it's really Dave's choice. And you can't – you know, he, he's, um, he's a complicated guy. And at 25, I just didn't have the tools to be able to work with someone, you know, as complex. Yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, no, no punchline. But. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's but totally I, fascinating. I, 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 um, I, as soon as I stepped down, I, I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I, like I realized about – six months before I stopped. Like, I didn't know you could get out of it. You know, it's a little like, it's, it's a little like working for the mafia. Like once you're in and you go in every day and Dave looks at you, you're like, I can't, there's nothing I can do, but keep writing these jokes and yelling at the thing. Uh, but as soon as I stopped, I got a job offer from the Simpsons and was like, Oh, th- thank God there's something else. And I went there and it was this room, room of, it was about 13, 14 people. Was, was Ron Hoggy there? Uh, Ron was there. <laughs> And uh, the, the big concerns there were, what are we going to order for lunch? What are we going to get for a coffee That's order? That's an important question. Um, <laughs> well, especially on The Simpsons, right? You what what season did, was this? This is the best thing. I recommend it to yeah. the, new, the lunch rotation. Yeah. So you don't decide, you don't pick the menu in the morning. There's oh. an agreed-upon rotation. Yeah. yeah. I recommend it. <laughs> Give it a try. Why not? We just got, we got two I more weeks. Call, Let's put it in for the last I will, two weeks. I will call Liz. I will yep. talk to you. <laughs> Lunch rotation. I, I hear some people have chefs. You, you, have you ever done that on a show? No, the, the Carsey Werner shows yeah. used to have a chef because Chuck complained, Chuck Laurie complained about because he said that the food was crappy. Mm-hmm. But that they had. <laughs> but that was back in like the 80s you know, when everyone drove Bentleys was, and there was cocaine, <laughs> piles of yes, cocaine piles on the coffee cocaine. tables. From the network. <laughs> Sweet day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, I heard I heard those stories from a guy named Marty Nadler, who was a writer on. Um, he was all the like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Mark and Mindy, and he said that I said was that true? And he said absolutely. It's seven o'clock, because they did their their afternoon run through was about a four o'clock run through. So we one of the great amazing innovations that we've done is the the one o'clock run through, because if you're going to do your rewrite afterwards, and this is about life changing things, if you do the run through at three o'clock, when you get back to the room, you're committed to ordering dinner. There's no way you can finish before dinner. Well, if you're committed to ordering dinner, you're also committed to a lost hour, a magic lost hour where everyone calls their families and finds out if they still have families. <laughs> and sometimes someone comes in the room and discovers they, you know, with the news that they no longer do, that <laughs> those people are now in Omaha. And, um, and so <clears throat> by moving it... Uh, I'm hoping I'm going to remember where this story started. I'm damping to I'm, remember I'm, where, the, where this began. Many uh, choices. Many no, <laughs> cocaine. No, cocaine. Cocaine. Uh, <laughs> right, cocaine. So Ma- Marty Nadler, who I met on the, on the last Carol Burnett show, this was their six episodes. If you can find it, it's an amazing piece of television peculiarity. It was an experience, by the way, that was a terrible experience that began with lunch at Carol's house and ended with one of the writers urinating in her office on the floor. (laughs) And you can kind of draw a line between that and just 
figure out how it went along the way. But um, uh, but he but he said that that back in you know back in the seventies and to, to do the rewrite that cocaine came out and. You know, and now we're excited when they're oh, there's cookies. Well, yeah, I know. Somebody yeah, said, right. "Oh, look!" So somebody sent Snooky's cookies with the milk, <laughs> and everybody's very, very excited about that. I, I wish cocaine was a was a, a thing that was good for you because in the eighties it was. There's a lot of it times was. where like, oh wow, that would no. really help. But in New York, in New York in the eighties, I remember people explained it. They, it is wonderful. It's not addictive. It's <laughs> right. <really> good for you. <laughs> It's uh, it's one. It contains several essential vitamins. Uh, yeah, yeah. But by the time I got to, I, I interned at both SNL and at Letterman, and both places had been through like the, the ringer on those, and there was just no drugs allowed. You know, they were like, but never got to try drugs on the job. I feel like that's that's one of those you, things. You any, can you can do it privately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, and it's, it's not, not too it's late. It's not too sanctioned anymore. But also, every time I'm wherever in a room with anyone who is. We always get that same discussion of like, at first it started like, guys, we're having lunch every day. Pick whatever you want. Then it was, okay, guys, there's a lunch budget. And then it was, guys, there's no lunch anymore. And so every show you go to, this, the, the grizzled old veteran in the back, like Quint, you know, on the chalkboard is like, oh, I remember the day back on Remington Steel when you could blah, 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 blah. You, got, you kids don't know how good we had it. Just hot and cold running whores all the time. <laughs> It's like, well, the business is shrinking, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we had on, uh, on the um, Look Up Platypus Man. And, uh, I wasn't that, even going to bring it up. That was, that, that, that was an amazing... I mean, there is... The, how hard you work on a show is inversely proportionate, I think, to how good it is. <laughs> and we had a tradition at Platypus Man that if you were working and the sun was rising, you took a break to watch. And that's true. <laughs> Um, and we slept in our office, and I just said, so, what is it we're doing? If we're not curing cancer, why are we doing this? But they were complaining about the lunch budget. This was, this was on one of the first shows on, on the, the new UPN network, um, and they were complaining about the lunch budget and the dinner budget, and at some, at some point, we knew this was done. We knew, we knew we were canceled, and we knew we were ordering probably our last our last meal uh, so we called the palm and, and ordered lobsters so here's a neat thing if you order 15 2 to 3 pound lobsters from the palm they send over a waiter and he sets it up for you and so that was good <laughs> that sounds great. It was very, very good. <laughs> Any other lunch-related details? This is, I can't. But you know, I mean, uh, Phil Rosenthal's production company is called Where's Lunch. There's there are yeah. few things. When you're working in a stalag trying to make television every week, there's that's the one freedom I, you, you know, get. It's funny because what I talk, I talk. To, do you talk to the the young people who ask about the careers in television? Oh yeah. Say, yeah, those kids out there. Yeah, those kids, and they say and. You try to say, so you're going to have two jobs. You're going to have the one you tell people about at yeah. parties, and then you're going to have the one you go to. And the one you go to, you're going to be in a room with, with like five or six or, I guess, 12 other people, and you're just going to be in this room, and you're going to know everything about these people. 
everything. Yeah. You you will you you will know you know where everybody is medically currently. You know where everybody is cyclically. Yeah, I was, you, I, I, uh, you know you know every you know everything about everyone, and 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 it's. Be- and you're mining all of this stuff, and it's all going to go on television, a lot of it, and, <laughs> and especially and people's relationships. And you know, you know before the spouse that uh, marriage is ending, generally, in a writer's room. Uh, that's, a, a, that's a sad truth, but you'll, you'll, it, it will be discussed in the writer's room before the news you know, makes it to Sherman Oaks. It's, it's basically... Yeah. <laughs> it, it's basically... I, I've been thinking about this this last week, and, and, and it's, it's not helping me. I, I probably shouldn't think this way, but it's basically like getting on a flight to Australia every morning, but you're not allowed to watch movies, you're not allowed to play on the internet, you're not allowed to look at your phone. All you get is that meal about halfway through the flight. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> but, but, but this seems very typical of uh, comedy rooms that we've, you know, when, when we've talked to comedy writers, because you guys really are in there, and especially in your case, writing the whole script in the room. Um, but, Steve, you've worked on a couple of drama shows. Is this typical of a drama show? Yeah, I mean, my first job in, in Hollywood was a PA for the West Wing mm-hmm. at that, the height of its West Winginess, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I. It's was was Dee Dee Myers there when you? She was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was that was, it was a great first job because if I had had the job I had after that and then went to a job like the West Wing, I would have said, "You people are all in. What is happening here?" But I mean, I I think back on that time and, like Matt and I, Matt and I were the two PAs on that show, right? So we sat in this tiny little office. We were we were the lamest like Spitfire pirate pilots ever where we would just sit in a room waiting for someone to call us and say, go to work. Mm-hmm. And then you had to run around. You had to make 200 copies. You had to collate them. You had to stick the labels on them. And then you had to drive all over town in the middle of the night delivering them, throwing them at people's houses. And no one ever learned your name. And, but if it wasn't for, you know, if, if, if you don't get that script to that right guy, like, the, there's nothing to shoot tomorrow. Because that guy didn't get his lines. That AD didn't get the size that he needed to figure out. that. So it was a really... It was a really crazy way to learn how to make television. It was great. It was graduate school. Like, it was a great way to learn how to produce a TV show as the guy who has no responsibility other than to make sure the script goes on the front door and, you know, gets over the fence. But uh, it was – then you go to – we went to our first writing job, and our showrunner was this woman, Carol Barbie, who's amazing. And the first thing she said is, fellas, there's no such thing as a television emergency. We all have families that we want to go home and see. We're just going to make this. We're going to do what we can, and then at the end of the day, we're going to turn off the lights. We're going to go home. We'll, we'll pick it up at 8 a.m. tomorrow. It's all going to be fine. Like, let's just settle down. Like, we can do this. And it, it was really interesting to see the two different ways to make TV, where you don't have to like you don't have to like sacrifice artistically just because you want to be insane and stay at the office all night long. It's the but the thing I'm sure you've heard the advice, which is when you're taking a job, find out if the showrunner is in a happy marriage. Yeah, likes his family. Ha- likes yeah. his family. Because if you are working for somebody who is doesn't like going home, then you don't go home. The, you know the yeah. stories of um, uh, oh, what was uh, the the radio sitcom with Phil Hartman, the late Phil Hartman. News, News radio. radio. News radio. The, they the, played video games all night. Yeah. And and Paul would, I mean, the stories that he would go out and he would go have a date. <laughs> he would go out to dinner, have a date, and come back, and the writing staff was still there. 
Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so no, I had the opposite. It was funny. I had the opposite experience on Board to Death. I, I went in to help Jonathan Ames put that to get, get that on TV and make that. And I was like, oh, boy, this guy is out every night. Like, like, this is a guy with nothing to do but be at the show. This is going to be a disaster. It turned out he likes to smoke a lot of pot. He doesn't really like to work past four in the afternoon. <laughs> and it was great. There's, it was back, back to drugs. The, <laughs> I, didn't, the, I didn't partake. I was like, a, I got to hold this the, together, I guess. The, for. There, there's, a, there's a writer, very, very good comedy writer, who is famous for attempting to cover up the smell of marijuana with Royal Copenhagen Cologne. <laughs> Which I don't know, uh, which he also believed was the secret to women, because his theory was you smell like their dad. <laughs> it's a very, it's an old, it's a very old wow. fashioned, it's a very old fashioned cologne, and uh, but, but he would, he got there's like a Costco size of Royal <laughs> Copenhagen cologne, and the, the stories he would he would go out he would go out to his car which you know which was Spicoli's van and 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 you know drew, you know and then, then bathe himself with a half a bottle of Royal Copenhagen and I apparently the writers on the show said we would much rather smell the pot <laughs> stop with the Royal Copenhagen it's it's amazing because and maybe in comedy it's different but for us in the drama room you sort of realize that no good ideas are happening at three in the morning, you know. At a certain point, everyone is just exhausted. It's and diminishing, they, need to, well, diminishing they gotta, returns, yeah, you gotta, yeah, you gotta go done. home and fill the well, or sleep, or see the family yeah. that you're doing it for, because no one ever got an Emmy for working hard. Well, but, and staying late. But you look at, you know, you look at, you look at something like the Friends writers' room, which was a notoriously late writers' room. So they had, they would finally, they would split into two rooms. Mm-hmm. So the early room would go home at ten o'clock, so that there would be somebody fresh. Mm-hmm. The next day, and then the and then the late room would stay until the rewrite is done. We don't stay late on the Big Bang Theory, and and we we won't. A lot of that, I think, you know, comes from throwing bad stories away and not going down the road with bad stories. What happens? Is, you know, it's it, you know, if you have a story that doesn't work, but in the story they buy a donkey. And so you've rented a donkey and you've built the donkey stable set and all of that. Then you're going to have to stay every night till 3 o'clock in the morning to figure out how to make the donkey scene work because that's the show you're doing. And um, I think out of a desire to not do that, we tend to do smaller stories. Mm-hmm. that, And we like the story and we say this is going to be the story this week. We're not going to, after the table read, um, change it. As, as opposed to on Platypus Man. <laughs> where after a table read that got not a single laugh, the um, the showrunners instructed us to write a new script that used the sets we had built and the actors we had hired. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about uh, platypus man. <laughs> well, where where on he the was scale? not a platypus. <laughs> where on the scale does uh, Gilmore Girls fit? What kind of a room was that? Gilmore Girls is a very, very peculiar experience, and I have to say that I enjoyed Gilmore Girls a lot more as a viewer um, than I did as a participant. Um, Which we've heard, we've had a couple of writers here who have kind of said the same. Well, so this is, you know, 
one of the things that you can have that can make a show fantastic and make it one of a kind is you can have a strong voice with an unshakable vision. And, and those words absolutely describe Amy Sherman. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem that you have is that you can't think like her. You can go off and think you can think like her, but you can't. Um, and you know you can come close. And I was you know I was very pleased. Every now and then, you know, working on that show, you'd watch it and you go, "Look at that! That's eight sentences I wrote <laughs> in a row." <laughs> and um, but but things went through a filter. And it's interesting because when Amy left the show. Um, the show lost its voice, and really, really, really good writers stayed on to run that show. And that that show was an expression of a single person's idea. And I and I think to a certain extent, what what you're doing, um, you know, if you meet Liz, you're meeting, you know, down down to the giant yeah. glasses that she hides behind. And to some extent, all of those characters on New Girl are Liz, right? You know, and they you know, really are her in yeah. pieces of her. You know, we, we we've had, um, you know, I think we've had good luck, you know, in the show in in finding uh, a writing staff that w- w- is as socially crippled as our characters. <laughs> um, but the but the interesting thing is is because. Um, you know, I ran the show for the first five years, and Steve Malaro is the head writer in season six. Um, and what I find interesting is watching as Steve draws on his painful life um, that um, our show seems to allow for that. But Gilmore Girls didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was because Amy heard these characters in her head. And uh, so it. It made for um, a challenging experience to be there. But, um, and, and we hear this, I mean, from any of these television auteurs, right? I mean, Sorkin was like this, mm-hmm. and we've had people who work for David Milch who describe the same sort of situation where you can't copy that voice, and you're but, only going you know, to have And it. those people, they, they wind up with, the rep, with, with bad reputations, and what... What, the, what they fail at is something I don't know if you can succeed at, which is trying to get you to know what's in my head. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if they get frustrated, they're frustrated because they don't understand how you can turn that page in because it doesn't match what's in their head. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, you know, it, uh, needless to say, it was, a year was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it, is the, it is the hardest thing about doing TV is telling basically 200 people what your vision is and getting it to come out the way you thought it. And, and it goes right down the line with costumes and sets and, you know, the locations and whatever, if, if you, you feel very strongly about it. It was so fun doing animation when I first went to The Simpsons and you could just do anything you could say and then you could tell them how to draw it and it would come mm-hmm. out that way, you know. It, it, and I started to ask before, what season was The Simpsons on when you came I, in? I, um, I, I think it was seven, I think it was the halfway through season seven and then through season 11 and um, uh, yeah, super fun. I mean, it was a, such a change of gears from Letterman which was every day, five o'clock, you do material to mm-hmm. 
we got nine months to get this thing perfected <laughs> and figure out the jokes, and it was great. Um, it's and, also a notoriously kind of laid-back room of full of smart, funny people smart, funny, where they're left alone. Yeah, where they're left alone. I mean, I, I was there for – between the two, uh, the first 11 or 12 years of my career – no network notes anywhere. Yeah. I never met wow. an executive. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> to this day, that, that was part of the process. And I, I got a development deal after that. I actually did a, an Austin Powers cartoon, actually, is why I left The Simpsons, um, for HBO. It was HBO, they green, uh, greenlit it and uh, picked up 13. It was, right, it was in between the first movie and before the second movie came out. We wrote 13, started, we're getting ready for our table read. Second movie came out, and Mike Myers suddenly wasn't returning calls, and felt like the, the um, promotion for the movie had sold out a lot of the characters um, with, with Heineken ads and Volkswagen. So suddenly this cartoon was like, we're not doing the cartoon. I was like, but we got Mick Jagger coming in and Marilyn Manson and the whole ca- – Robert Wagner's been calling me for two weeks. He's ready to go. Um, it, it could have been the greatest cartoon ever. Uh, but also in a vault with those uh, yeah, 80 this, Star Wars scripts yeah. or 13 uh, uh, things. So we, we had three months where we – Wrote all, finished writing all the scripts and then went home. But um, I'm sorry. The, the, but going out developing, the first time I developed, I wrote a script about growing up. I grew up on Nantucket Island, very personal about about the winters there. It's called the off season, and handed it in to Fox, and they were like, eh, cheerleaders shouldn't be fat. And you know, I started getting these notes from Peter Chernin. I was like, who's Peter Chernin? Who cares what this guy thinks? Um, and they didn't make it. Yeah. Are the cheerleaders fat because it's winter and they for protection for to they, survive? They uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the cheerleaders there were uh, this group of. Uh, I, I, if they're listening, I'm sorry. I don't think they are, but um, we called them the seagulls, and they were. Um, they all smoked cigarettes, and for some reason carried field hockey sticks. Though none of them played field hockey. Did they fight crime. Uh, no, they they made passes at us, mm. and they'd hit you with the field hockey sticks, and like looking good, and you know, with thick Boston accents, and you're like, they're terrifying. <laughs> but not Fox, not Fox. <laughs> Don't pitch that to Fox. Uh, I just want to follow up real quickly uh, on making the move from Letterman to The Simpsons. Uh, was The Simpsons the first narrative scripting you had done? Yeah, it was. Um, I, 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 if I, if you're planning a way to learn how to to um, write jokes. Uh, and then learn how to tell stories. Start with those two shows because it's a great um, way to learn those. The Simpsons was this great three-act structure. They're very filmic. You could sh- go anywhere in the world. You could tell any kind of story you wanted to tell. Um, and you, you, they could be super funny and they can be full of heart and, and um, dramatic at times. You know? So it was a great place to oh, learn how to write everything. I, I love The Simpsons as, for, for people working on stories because they're very traditional in their structure mm-hmm. they're really really old fashioned and i in a yeah. good in a good way i mean they're you know they're 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 my three sons structured right. very old fashioned television a very very clear uh, a protagonist identified immediately in the story. Right. This is Lisa's story. This right. is Lisa's story, and a goal identified immediately in yep. the story. I want to meet a famous saxophone player, whatever it is, right. and the obstacle right away. Yep, and, and then a bunch of twists along the way that you, and, right. and hopefully some jokes that you didn't see coming. Right. You know, but that it, catch you. But catch if you you're, yeah, I mean, but if you're looking for things to look at, and and. Uh, you know, I, earlier years, I would, I would, the first decade or so of The Simpsons, because it's, it's the storytelling. I think has become an out of necessity. That's I got out you know. right at season eleven. I was like, it's heading down a path. No, I right. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
I won't, there, well, I won't let Bart do that. <laughs> uh, are there shows, and this is for any of you, that, uh, that you know, these guys could watch for that kind of model, which you think are sort of a master class in storytelling or jokes or you know, whatever it is, or drama or character? I don't know if there's a master class. I mean, it, it, for, for me, it was all the garbage you watch. It, it, you know, at The Simpsons, we often talked about Brady Bunch episodes because you go like, that very simple beginning, middle, and end, and, and here's a, a problem. Same at New Girl, though. We do stuff that you just feel like, haven't we done a story about a wedding a million times? Then you filter it through these new characters and come up with some new ideas for it, um, and it makes it fresh. But Three's Company and like all, just all those were just like story after story after story. Yeah, yeah for me, it was uh, as a kid, my, my dad would come home for, work, for lunch every day, and he would turn on the TV, and he would watch Rockford and M.A.S.H., and so as like a little kid, I'm learning how to I'm learning how TV works because I'm because I'm still watching like Magnum and you know Family Ties, but every afternoon I saw the, the old school like 70s structure of Rockford plus the sort of like esoteric social commentary slash comedy of Mash, and it's like oh TV does more than just Michael J. Fox jokes or a talking alien. Oh, this is pretty interesting stuff. And, and to this day, you can still use those as they're still good for story reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, the, the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, great story structure, holds up for clean. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, for, for clean, well-made storylines, an episode of Bewitched. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very clean. It is the same, a, a marvelous thing, the ability to use essentially the same plot in every episode <laughs> of Bewitched. Yeah. So it's one plot. <laughs> and, but variations uh, on a plot. Right. Yeah. And the protagonist of every episode of was a little quiz. Protagonist of every episode of Bewitched traditional story structure is protagonist is Darren, and in every episode Darren wants what? Normal life. No, is it? To land the new client. In, in He's ev- bringing him home in, for dinner. In, in every in every episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and the obstacle is is you know Benjamin Franklin in the living room, uh, in every episode always Benjamin Franklin. It's amazing they did that. What strange place am I, good lady? It, I was thinking about Mash the other day. Like it kind of blows my mind. I haven't watched it since. I watched them. I loved the show. Loved the show as a kid. And it kind of blows my mind now that that was a show that everyone watched. Like I, I can't even imagine that coming out of the process that we're all in. Even on cable, like is well, but that's isn't that comic? that's from that that's from the that brief time when sitcoms were were real and controversial. Mash right. is a reaction family, to yeah. Mash is a reaction to the Vietnam War. All in the Family is a reaction. Is, you know, is the is the tiny little microcosm um, uh, of what is going on. What was called at, at the time the generation gap. It had a name because you had you had this post-war generation and you had you know this. Young generation. If you want to look at, it's interesting. You want to look at small moments, and go look at an episode of All in the Family. And so, All in the Family is a, is a running argument between Archie and Michael, in which Edith is always right. The you know because Edith Edith always represents a sensible middle to two uh, you know two opposite viewpoints. The viewpoints are so opposite. And neither will yield to each other. That the writers and the directors found crazy moments to indicate that. And a recurring piece is that is that Mike and Archie approach a door at the same time and get stuck in the doorway, because neither will yield to the other. 
And, and if you watch it, they repeated it dozens of times. They would walk and get stuck in a door. Or a, a, a classic scene of All in the Family, and this is, this is, I always talk about writing small, and this is about writing small, is that um, uh, Archie comes to Mike. Mike's in his bedroom, and he says, come on, we've got to go take care of something. And Mike says, sure. And then Mike proceeds to put on his shoes and his socks. And Archie says, hang on, what are, you, what are you doing there? And he says, I'm putting on my shoes and socks. And he says, no, you don't do it like that. You don't put on a sock and a shoe and a sock and a shoe. You put on a sock and a sock and then a shoe and a shoe. And Mike says, well, no, I put on a sock and a shoe and a sock and a, sock and a shoe. He says, that's great. And, and then they start arguing about this. And they talk about, well, what if there's a fire and you're outside? And... <laughs> And then, you know, it's my way, you know, you're even. And, and Mike points out his way, you can stand and hop around on, on one shod foot. And, and finally, finally, at this point, Mike has, has his shoes on and says, you want me to start over? And Archie says, there's no time for that. <laughs> but that to me, you know, in terms of writing and looking at small moments and looking at what situation comedy is, that's what a, what a wonderful, fine moment that doesn't, you know, you're not doing some crazy giant production piece you're just allowing the characters to breathe and that that era of tv was also special because i i mean i don't i because i watched them all in reruns so i got them once a day as opposed to having to wait a week to get the next episode is i that was the first time i noticed that the heroes didn't know and that's the thing that they're always sort of hammering into us in the the network job of like he's the hero the hero knows like steve mcqueen always knows the answer. Steve McQueen doesn't ask. Steve McQueen tells you the thing he wants to know. Whereas Rockford caused as many problems as he solved, and Hawkeye was full of more doubt than anybody on TV I've ever been, and he was always... That's very relatable when... That's the thing I respond to as a character, where the guy doesn't always know. Like, Indiana Jones is a mess. Well, it's, you know, Sean, Sean Ryan talked about... Um, he was on... Uh, what was the, the one hour with Don Johnson where he solved crimes? Yeah, Nash Bridges. Nash yeah. Bridges. So that's where Sean was a staff writer. And the note that came, I guess, from the network and from Don Johnson is that the character could make no mistakes. He couldn't do anything wrong. Right. Right. And after being in those... So then Sean wrote The Shield, which <laughs> yeah. he says is a direct, a direct reaction to... You know, to Nash Bridges, and I think you know one. It's interesting because I think we've we've gained and lost. I think in comedy we've lost uh, to a great extent the ability to address things. The, you know, the stories yeah. that you can do on All in the Family that you can't do now. Right. In drama, we seem to be able to do everything now and have dark antiheroes and and there's lots well, of room for it on, on cable, maybe. Oh, I think you see it. Uh, you see it on on network television too. I think you see messier characters mm-hmm. in in drama. You don't. They're not yeah, white hat true. good guys and black hat bad guys. Talk to me about early influences, Steve. Starting with you, uh, outside of Star Wars and Rockford, uh, uh, what was the stuff that made you say, "I want to do this for a living. I want to make people say things." Believe it or not, it was. Uh it was it was kind of like the it was the Spielberg Lucas of course like everybody who's like my age, mm-hmm. um, but also you know I I feel like if if a few good men or Raiders is on TV I'm going to watch it no matter what and so the idea of working on the West Wing was was really great because I got to learn how to break down a script the way he you're you're never going to think like he thinks but you can figure out the way he, it, it's paced to try to match the okay so character goes here that does that mm-hmm. so that was that was good for like learning the craft of writing. But for me, it's like anything, like, Grammyost is awesome. Like, 
everything, all the HBO Playtone stuff that he did, justified all those things. But also, um, I really I watched a ton of movies when I was a kid, and that was that was it. It was it's kind of like all across the board. If, it, if there's Nazis who get punched in that in a movie, I'm in. You know. <laughs> So that's that's generally where like my influence came from, where things could be better than just a story. It could be a thing that really affects me. Do you remember? That's, that's not where I thought you were going when you start believe it or not, because that's very plausible. I always tell that story. Like I always feel like I'm like a 65 year old man. I find the Bhagavad Gita is where <laughs> I draw. I, well, no, that's that's startling. Yeah. Do you remember the thing that made you say somebody wrote this? that you recognized a name as the author of, a, a, whether as a movie or a TV show, or, or even a book that you said someone made this? Uh, it was, when I put together, I wasn't much of a reader when I was a kid. And the way, my mom was a librarian too, so that's great. Uh, but she was really smart. She judoed me by, she would give me the novelizations of the movies I loved. And I would devour them, and I would notice, oh wait, this isn't exactly the same as the as the movie I watched, it's actually it's actually not really good. And then I would I looked at the the author of the book, and then I would watch and I would see that it's like oh, there's someone different here who's doing their version. They watched the movie and then they they wrote like this is what he's thinking at this moment. I'm like oh, so that's a completely. It's not just like this is a thing that's happening. This is someone's interpretation of a movie I'm seeing, and I can do better than this. And I think that was the moment where it was like, you see, you see writers, and then you read the novelization of writers. And I apologies to whoever that person is that wrote the novelization of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not, it's not as good as the movie. Some, <laughs> somewhere someone's going, well, I'm going to take a break from writing novelizations. Listen to that podcast. I like. <laughs> Along with the... Uh... But to be fair, it's like those poor people, like they're, they're getting paid by the page. They've got to fill it out and add that extra scene that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, early, early. Stuff I mean, I, I just loved comedy in any form. Steve Martin, Bill Murray, John Belushi, mm-hmm. um, Monty Python, Pee Wee Herman, stuff like that. I think that's why I gravitated to Letterman. It was like this place where all those people yeah. showed up. I think they also all um, seemed like people who were generating their own material, even if they had writers. It seemed like, oh, those are just funny people who are going out and doing funny stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, funny. Whatever was funny. <laughs> Uh, and unexpected, yeah. you know. I, the, the same, you know, the, 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 the comedy influences are, you know, they're, they're the, how, how the Borscht Belt got to us. So, you know, the, the, the Borscht Belt, the great sort of incubator for um, American comedy, which was, which was American Jewish comedy. And, you know, all, all the people who wound up later writing, you know, Mel Tolkien from from all in the family and Sid Caesar and Woody Allen and Kyle Reiner and and Mel Brooks and all of those people were entertaining they were they were they put on skits at resorts in the Catskill Mountains during the years when Jews couldn't go to Gentile resorts and all of those people when comedy started in Hollywood that that they became the writing staff you look the writing staff of your show of shows is you know is all all of those people um and but the way that got to my generation was Woody Allen. The Woody Allen um, recordings were very important. Yeah. You know, uh, I, that, I was actually thinking that that was one of the first things where he actually had books full of his 
sketches. You go like, right. oh, this is a writer writing this stuff. Right. And then you'd see his movies. And, oh, but know. I think the thing that I listen to, you know, the, the Woody Allen stand-up uh, recordings, and, and there are two LPs of them. And I, I must have listened to them a thousand times because the, you could hear the rhythm of how the joke went together. You could, you could feel, you know, the moose story, which you must all learn, is, is a precise, it, it, it's, a, it's a master class in timing, in the callback, in concealed exposition, in um, just everything that you need to write comedy is in about a six-minute piece from Woody Allen um, about shooting a moose. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that was very important. I, I think, you know, I... I, I remember that I can absolutely remember the first sitcom joke. I, I understood how it worked was from Maud, and Maud was getting married, and it was her fourth marriage, and she was upstairs having cold feet. And her daughter says, "Well, let's have them play the wedding march, and maybe she'll come downstairs force of habit." <laughs> and it was the first time that I said, "Okay, I see how that works." And the, the amazing thing about the, the joke works when the explosion happens in the listener's head, when you put the pieces together, and the explosion happens here. And so you give them the dynamite and the fuse and everything like that, and you light it, and then you stand back. And that's the first time I saw. Well, that's you know that's how a joke works. Uh, you guys must have questions, yes. On Big Bang, Sheldon is defined almost purely and faithfully as a uh, Asperger character. And is that done deliberately and consciously? We write Sheldon as Sheldon, and we are limited in understanding, uh, in our understanding of the character by the history of the character. So given that his mother didn't take him for a diagnosis, we don't have one available to us. <laughs> so we, we write Sheldon's behavior consistent with who we know Sheldon to be. Great answer. Why is Letterman Studio so cold? I, I think it, it it forces everyone to be awake and and they're funniest and uh, and no one kind of. Yeah, our, our stage is cold too. People get yeah. sleepy. They get sleepy when, when it's warm and they don't laugh. Yep. Um, I want to come back to this Sheldon question for a minute and kind of open it up to be a little more general uh, about creating characters that pop that where the comedy comes from these characters and not from necessarily from the formed jokes that they say. You know, I, um, as, I, uh, as I say, I, I teach these days, and as I, I say to my students, I see one of them here, and she will attest to the fact that I t talk about being lazy as a, as a writer. <laughs> Why go to all the trouble of making people up when you know people? And, and you can put them in your little show. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew a Sheldon. I was a Leonard. You know, I mean, it just, you, you, it's so much easier if you start out with people that you know because then you tend not to write, um, you tend not to write caricatures because... When you create people characters out of whole cloth, you put together characteristics you think go together, but people don't come as sets of characteristics that go together. People come as sets of discordant characteristics. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, from the lazy school of writing, start with people you know. Sure. And, and then it does change, it, it, like you were saying, you, you, you build a history over the course of doing shows where they... Mm -hmm. 
you suddenly have more information when they get into different situations. You have to you have to figure out what would this guy do there, and then you figure right. that out and shoot it, and then suddenly you have some new information about right. this person. Right. You know? right, and and you you stay you stay true to that. As and, as one half of a writing team, we haven't, and also having never run a show before. Our job, you know, when you're not the showrunner, your job is to help the showrunner write their show. And so you're not creating characters. You're writing the characters you know to be there already. And now that we're transitioning to writing movies where we're creating the characters, it's a really interesting process because we find that most of the, you know, for the 10 years we've been working together, we're on TV shows where it's plot-based. And the characters are there. And the characters will do what they're going to do. But you've got to work on the plot. But we're defined. We're dis- we're we're discovering that we have to spend a lot more time talking about characters because we're creating them now as opposed to writing characters that were already there for somebody else mm-hmm. where we've got to stop and be like, wait a second, you're writing him this way and I see him this way. Okay, let's go get a sandwich and talk about who this guy is. And it's weird because we've never, like, we don't have a lot of conversations about who this guy is and what he does <laughs> because in, in TV you're just moving so fast mm-hmm. that you've just got the, the trains running and in features everything's so slow and so there's a lot more, like, there's a lot more, you know, having, you know, let's let's go get uh, let's go get uh, a coffee and talk for two and a half hours about our, our upbringing to, you know, put one of that one to get that one line right in that one script because we're both seeing a different guy. I mean, we we do it on every character that walks into the screen. We will make a decision, starting, you know, starting with primary characters. But when a waiter comes over to take an order in a scene in a restaurant. You have to make a decision as to who the waiter is. Does he like his job? Does he hate his job? Is it early in the shift? Is it late in the shift? Whatever it is, because that's going to, the more you know about the character, the more you can decide, the more that character will help you write the scene as opposed to you sort of slogging along. If you make a decision that a waiter is busy, make the simple decision that a waiter is busy, then when he comes to a table and your characters are involved in their own life, he has, that character has an energy. And if, if you simply write the waiter comes over to take your order and you don't think about the waiter, then you create a dead spot, you know, and that's, you, you, you have to know, and, uh, you know, and you steal them. This waiter was the waiter from the restaurant last night. <laughs> right. The one, the one who was awfully informative about her personal life. That's this waiter that we'll use here. Um, and, and then casting is this other thing that that that, like, a difference from animation for me was going to these shows where you actually cast people and you write you write somebody. Schmidt wouldn't be Schmidt without Max Greenfield, who I mean, it's it's wonderfully written and he's flawed and he's got these things, but then that guy comes in and it changes it, but also makes it what it is. You know. Um, when Zach Galifianakis was cast in Board of Death, that suddenly made that character Ray kind of Zach, and we took some of his stuff. You know, like it, it, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Um, I have to ask before we wrap up, uh, mm-hmm. we didn't talk about Why the Last Man at all. <laughs> okay. And these nerds want to hear it. Um, did you pitch on this? Was this a, one of these assignments that, where a bunch of writers went in to pitch on a feature and you had to give your take on it? How did the assignment come about? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it actually goes... It goes back further than that because I'm a big comic book nerd, and I, I, we read the book when we were doing Jericho because it's there's similar themes there that are good, and um, then you know fast forward a few years later, my wife and I um, are had just watched a really bad comic. I don't even remember the movie, but it was one of those really bad comic adaptations, mm-hmm. and she was saying like, why does nobody like why aren't they making a good comic book adaptation like Why the Last Man? I'm like, yeah, I know, I I know, sweetie, it's I can't. This is ridiculous. And then two days later, the phone rang. 
and hey, uh, so New Line's got this thing. You may have heard of it. It's Why the Last Man. And I'm like, okay, I, uh, Matt, we're, we got, we, we're going to do this, right? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm totally into it. Like, we, we have to come up with a take. And so we didn't for a second think we were going to get that job because we, we assumed, like, well, I mean, I, they're obviously going to hire Christopher McQuarrie because that's who they hire for everything. Um, and we, so we just came up with a really casual version of what we thought a cool version of that movie would be based on our love of the comic, but also knowing what a movie needed to be that was different than a comic. And we went in and we pitched it, and we beat out a lot of really talented writers to get that job. And the process to this point is still ruining our future career and features because it's been really smooth and the notes have been great. And the, the, you know, everyone is really smart and really engaged and really well-read and understands the changes that are, need to be made and why they're being made. And so I think that there's, there's still a really good chance it's a, it's, it's a real movie and it's a good chance it'll be a good one too. So here's, here's hoping. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, other questions? Yeah. So when you're looking at a new writer script, whether it's a spec or a pilot giving notes or maybe a new staff writer, are you looking for something in particular? Like, are you looking for out of the box or more like they stayed on the structure of our show? Are you talking about writing a spec script as a writing sample? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're looking at, I'm more thinking about like a new writer, if you're looking at a pilot, but also a spec, you know, for your show. If somebody gave you a big bang spec, which you probably I, I, wouldn't read, I, I would I would try not to, and and that is a that, but that's a courtesy to the writer. Right. Um, I would ask for a spec of a show that I don't work on, right. to um, because I'll be less picky about it. Um, when you look at a spec script, you're you, unfortunately what you're looking for is an episode of the series better than the series as it airs. That's what you, that's what sets a spec script. If the spec script is a serviceable episode of Modern Family, and you say that is a perfectly fine 14th episode of the season of Modern Family, then it doesn't do the writer any good. The burden is, is, is writing better. There, the, this is a kind of question that unfortunately the answer boils down to it should be really good. Um, well, can, well, I, but well, I don't. I don't know. And, you know. You, and it should. It should be something that shows, like that shows what you want to work on and write for. Like, don't waste your time writing specs for shows yeah. that you would hate to work on. Um, I, I, the the best spec script story I have was when I was doing the Austin Powers show. I read a whole bunch of scripts. I got this one that was a Simpsons episode. And I was like, oh boy, I don't want to read a Simpsons, whatever, and. It was crazily formatted, and I was like, well, I'll take a look at this. And the act one was about three pages, and act two was like 58 pages, and act three was like six pages. And there were crazy new characters that had never been The Simpsons. But it was really funny, and that's what I was looking for at that job. There's this, this kid, Nick Stoller, who now directs movies and stuff. But I was like, this guy seems crazy, but really funny, and probably with a little help we can get him to figure out how to format these things. And, uh, and in a low-level writer, that's kind of okay. Right? And that was kind of okay. And for that job, I was like, oh, he's right. cr- talented and funny, and yeah. that's what we were looking for. And if, you know? if the question behind the question is, what's the thing I should be writing? The, I think the answer is write what you love, that, because that's where your true talent, that's where it's going to come out. Like That's where your voice is going to come out, and I think that that's the thing that's going to give you a career, not just a job. Pragmatically, have an awesome single camera spec, an awesome four camera spec, and an awesome original pilot. Yeah, so you can I, and let me get a, a little more specific because we can. Um, you put together the writer's room for the, that first season of Big Bang. Do you remember the kind of material that you were getting in that you responded to? Um, 
Yeah, and it's and it's that. I mean, you know, you're looking for. I mean, you can you can you you can dip down. You can say you know different than what you were looking for when you were doing Austin Powers. I if it's a spec script, I want a spec script that isn't atypical. That you know that isn't sure. you know I I don't. I don't want to see the, you know, the the character, you know, write write a typical episode of of, of the show, um, and I look at an original pilot um, to see if the who the writer is, and so I'm I'm much more interested in original pilot where I get the sense there's some autobiographical quality to it because it tells me a little bit about who this is and who I'm going to have in the room. Um, and what they have in their life that might serve me in what I'm doing that, you know, vampirically. Um, Well, there's a wealth of experiences in the room, right? One of the coolest submissions I saw was actually Steve Malero, who works for you now, was along with his scripts, he put some of his, he has a blog called The Sneeze. Right. And it's very personal, and it's just these little shorts. And it's such a relief when you're reading 100 scripts to go like, oh, here's just four or five pages of funny stuff that is also great stories and, and from a smart, funny person. And it sort of rounded out his packet. So I would also say if you're putting together packets, don't be afraid to go like, here's this great thing I write, whether it's a short or whatever or even something you've shot. or Put those in there. Like adding another three minutes to the reading session, that's great. Yeah, and that, that – Particular example got Steve the job certainly, you know, at, at Big Bang. I, I just the 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 biggest mistake people make with going out with uh, writing samples is they're not finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'll look at I'll look at stuff and say, all right, thank thank you for the opportunity to read your rough first draft, um, <laughs> but uh, and and I don't have time to wait for your finished version. Yeah. Uh, we have time for one more question. Does the um, rising popularity and ratings like play enough like add more pressure in the writing room to create something that the audience would just like tune in more and more every week? Yeah, I mean, how much do you think about that audience and serving precisely what they want, and how what, much do you think what about could the you, room? What could you do differently? <laughs> what could you do differently? Uh, you 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 show up every day. You write the show. You know how to write. Uh, you know, I I don't know. You know. No, in no writer's room has has anyone said, "Well, there is another million people watching, so let's kick our kick our game, people." You know, let's <laughs> let, oh, come on. Then we know we have a fifth gear. Um, I mean, I think it goes the other way. I think when when <laughs> when you're working on something that has drifted down to the cellar, uh, you you might work a little. A little I mean, I, I, the, the the worst version of that for me was at Letterman when when. He came on CBS, started beating Leno, and then they started even out, and they started losing. And he started to analyze everything at the detriment of the show. I mean, we had meetings every night about the the blue, the the purple filter on the lights, and was that hurting the way the guests looked? And is that why they're watching Leno? And they're like, we should be what, writing it? more. It was okay. We fixed it. <laughs> uh, so they look purple. <laughs> they're so purple. It was ridiculous. There, there's, um, there's so few things you can control about making TV, except for the things that you do in the writers' room. Because once it goes out the door, you are a slave to your location. If you're shooting, at least for drama, if you're shooting out, you're a slave to your location. You're a slave to your actors who may or may not be on their A game. Your guests, including the director, who may or may not understand the show or know how to shoot it or be uh, a experienced enough to know how to get out of a tight spot or be so 
like such a good old boy of like here's how we're going to do it and not get, give you the stuff you need mm-hmm. where you just got to like you can't con- there's so much stuff you can't control at least in drama you got to just make the best show yeah. you can make every week and and hope people like it just you know? just That's... reload and fire reload yeah. and fire <laughs> uh, which i think is good advice for specs and samples too it's write the thing that you can do, right? Write yeah. the best thing that you can do. Right. Don't turn in a first draft. Um, <laughs> starting with Bill and then moving down to Steve. Uh, what are you watching on TV these days? What is your room talking about? What's getting you excited to write? Uh, what are you reading? What are you seeing on in the movies? Anything These like are that. very personal questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's your address? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, t- I tend not. Uh, to watch comedies because um, it's kind of a busman's holiday. Um, but, um, you know, I'll watch episodes of I, I enjoy uh, the, the, uh, the New Girl I, um, or Modern Family, but I won't watch them regularly. Um, uh, I, like, I like dramas. I like, you know, I, I mean, the things we all like, Breaking Bad. And <laughs> I just, we can still say them. I just... Um, <laughs> I actually went there. I... I um, I'm almost caught up on uh, The Walking Dead, and we did an episode of The Big Bang Theory, uh, which was all about spoilers, and (laughs) so I'm, everybody in the room has seen it, and I'm two years behind everybody, and we had a line in, is anybody not caught up in Walking Dead? It's it's too late now, you guys. (sighs) Go ahead. So we're in the writers' room, and because because I'm 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 part time on Big Bang Theory this year, so I'm I'm in and out of the writers' room. And I came back in, and we've been working on the script. And I came back in, and I'm and I'm looking at it. And Sheldon, it's at the end of the thing. And Sheldon says, "Let's catch up in Walking Dead. Have you seen the one where Lori dies?" <laughs> <laughs> and I I said, "Oh, guys, come on." <laughs> And they all knew. Just for the record, they all knew. Um, but I like uh, I like I watch gritty dark stuff. I like and I I mean I I love you know I wish uh, Caprica had survived. I wish Firefly. All the things that Sheldon wishes had survived. <laughs> I wish I wish had survived. Um, you know all of all of that stuff um, and. Uh, and, and I'm and I'm reading a very interesting expose right now of uh, of an unusual modern religion that I am enjoying. <laughs> Do not say it on record. <laughs> I cannot say the name. I heard of. I heard that is great though. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, uh, Donick, what are you watching? Uh, what are your rooms I, talking about? I was I was trying to think of anything interesting uh, of what I'm watching, but um, last year or two, whatever it was, whenever Downton Abbey first came on. The whole room was sort of like, what's this thing? And we're all watching it. And we wrote, we broke a story where Jess was having a Crandall Lane, which was our version of Downton Abbey uh, party. And everyone's getting into Crandall Lane. And they're all identifying with characters on Crandall Lane and how awesome this was. And we pitched it. And every, and, and, both the studio and network were like, "This is ridiculous. No one's going to watch this thing." You're like, "We can't. You can't do a Crandall Lane. This won't resonate with anyone." Anyway, so we have that in our back pocket. Um, I do like that. It's it seems a little silly now. Um, Game of Thrones. I'm I, I, I'm loving. I do like um, comedy wise. Like what I watched this weekend was Enlightened, which I really really like. I think that is like. 
by far one of the best comedies on TV. It's so good. Um, Portlandia, uh, Fred Armisen makes me laugh every week um, with something strange and wonderful. And um, and uh, I decided this weekend to take, or not this weekend, last weekend to take girls out of my DVR because <laughs> I was I was like hate watching it. <laughs> like I know you're supposed to like this, and you're, but I hate it, and they're so dumb, and the, and and I was like, why am I doing this every Sunday night right before I try to go to bed? So I'm done with girls. But he's not because then he's going to go back to it, and then he's going to say, Lena, I'm sorry, I will, I, will. I, I, I am back, and she's going to say, Are you really back this time? And, I know, and then I know. you're, you're going to say, I am, and then she says, I know you're not going to be. And yep, it would well, never happen be. on Downton right. Abbey. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's all the same stuff. I, you know, as a as a drama writer, I find that I watch a lot of comedy, uh, just because it's nice to kind of like clear the buffer a little yeah. bit. But I also um, I watch a lot of documentaries too. I think that's yeah. another great way to get story and fill the well. And reading nonfiction and and like a good Nova or an American Experience is as good as a day in the writer's room for no, me. No, Frontline, like, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, independent Lens, like those series, which are like 10 unbelievable things that blow away almost anything on TV, yeah. that every year they just crank those out. It's, uh, those are, yeah. And there's me nothing too. more satisfying than watching it and then calling Matt or when he'll do the same thing to me where it's like, okay, I heard the craziest thing. And maybe this is too crazy, but I think how this, is, this would work in this problem we're having, and it has nothing to do with the problem we're trying to solve, yeah. but right. it's just there's just enough there where it, it's so... It's so ridiculous it has to be true that it's like, oh, that's, that's good drama. Your, your writing process is like an episode of House, and then you have this problem. <laughs> it's always uh, lupus. You have this problem, right? <laughs> and, and then you go talk to Wilson, and yeah. he talks about something with his something, and yeah. then you go, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, oh, please. and uh, Treme is remarkable, and it's sad that no one Stuck watches with it. it. Treme, oh, I think it's one of the greatest things. You got to watch like three or four at a time, I think. I also the, I think it's the, the way thing, to do it. The thing that's like heroin for me is uh, is uh, American Pickers. For whatever reason, <laughs> I can't. This has I, come up more than once. Yeah. I get three of those on, and I just sit down, and like that's when I really <laughs> relax. Like, oh shit, I, I'm so I'm so behind the times on reality shows that I like the, I like the pace of. What's the, what's the, the PBS show where they where they bring things in and have them appraised? Oh, Antique Roadshow. Road show. Yeah. And it's still, so, so it's and it's great. so gentle. And what yeah. my favorite thing? It's like the Hugh Hauser of PBS. Yeah. Here's, here's what's Hauser wonderful about Antique Roadshow, and it's, pay, pay attention to this. No matter how remarkable the find is, no matter how uh, well this is interesting, what what you have there. This is actually Queen Victoria's handbag. This is the one she carried, and you can see it in this portrait here, and it's preserved remarkably. And you say you bought it, you bought it for twelve dollars. Conservatively, this would be worth uh, four to five hundred million dollars. <laughs> and no matter what it is, the reaction is always the same. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> right. That's, that's I think that's I'll hold on to it. That's right. Why, <laughs> why did you come to this thing? Right. That's right. just you know, and I just I like that because it's a world where people don't get too excited about things, <laughs> and that's I think a nice that's a nice world, you know, because things like Fox News is the opposite. Breaking news, breaking news is coming yeah. through. Breaking, and it's not breaking news. And then this is just sort of like the other thing. It's very nice. I think that there's, there's, though, there's, like, there's probably a cynical executive who's going to listen to this and be like, wait a second. That's a good first half of a game show. But when they're told what it's worth, we need to have a box with a question mark on it. And they can keep what they've got, their heirloom, or they can trade in for what's in the box. Is, now, I'll tell you. 
Howie Mandel next Ron, Christmas. Ron, <laughs> Hosted Ron, by Alton Brown. Ron Hauge, Ron Hauge if, you, if you'll recall, we, we talked about it a little earlier, um, had the best game show. Ron, Ron was a writer on The Simpsons and then became the, the, car- the guy who did all the design because he's an amazing artist. But Ron uh, pitched uh, a game show called Beat the Dog. And <laughs> No matter what you're thinking, it's not what you're thinking. Because the contestants are each positioned beneath a dog suspended above them who's been fed a powerful laxative. And for each... Is it, is it weird that that's actually what I was thinking? Well, okay, well then now, then, then you know how it's played. For each correct response, you get an article of protective clothing. And, and you, know, you get a hat... And then a raincoat, and then you get an umbrella. I, I hope I hope Ron knows Fox is developing this. I, it's actually, actually, has, Ron is amazing. Has a collection. He, do you know about his museum of American disasters? He was collecting like, a lot of um, very yeah, dark t- things. Titanic in the stuff and, and a piece of the chair from Lincoln's assassination. Very very yep. scary. Yeah, things that he had. A lot of laughs. We had, a, we had a, just one thing that often happens in, in writers' rooms. There's room bits, right? These things that sort of keep you. Besides lunch coming, the room bit is often the thing that eats up a couple hours of your day, but gets you through the day and keeps you sane, and then yeah. and keeps you funny. It's the poster of Rita Hayworth, is what it right, is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we we had a similar thing. I hadn't heard about Ron's game show, but at, at Letterman there was a room bit. Uh, I vaguely remember what the game show was, but it involved Florence Henderson. Um, sitting in a chair with a giant bag full of pee. It was called Bag of Pee, and the audience would yell, Bag of Pee! And um, I'm not sure who answered questions or why she, the Bag of Pee was dropped on Florence Anderson, but I do remember chanting Bag of Pee a lot. <laughs> if you take nothing else from this night, uh, please give a round of applause to our panelists, Stephen Skaya. Donna Carey and Bill Prady. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826LA. See you next week. Now leaving Nerdist.com.